You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So picture a four-year-old child being, being asked to describe the, the, the majestic nature and the complexity of the Milky Way galaxy. Or, or a sunrise over uh, a majestic mountain range, right? As you, as you listen to this child full of excitement, awe, and wonder as he, as he looks at maybe a picture on a screen or standing before the sunrise, before this majestic mountain range, and he, and he labors to try to explain with his very limited knowledge and his very limited vocabulary what, what he's looking at, right? I'm sure all of us would, would either giggle, smirk, or smile and say, oh, how cute, right? This, this little child with very limited knowledge is trying to explain something that even men and women with multiple PhDs, when they stand before the Milky Way or a, a, a majestic mountain range at, at sunrise are still struck with awe and with wonder. And this morning, I'm, I'm very aware that, that when talking about the topic of God's glory, we as Christians can exert as much force as possible, wordsmith every phrase, be careful to communicate passionately and poetically, and yet in all of those efforts still fall incredibly short of, 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 of painting a full picture of God's glory. Why? Well, because God is just that glorious, right? God is just that glorious. And for us as Christians, speaking of describing and communicating God's glory puts us in the same category as this four-year-old child when asked to describe the Milky Way or a sunrise over the mountains. So with this in mind, uh, I'll, I'll do my best to communicate while we trust the Spirit uh, to illuminate His glory to us through His Word. And what, what I want us to primarily see this morning through the text that we'll walk through as we dive into the historical and, and biblical understanding of this Reformation motto, to God alone be the glory, it, it, I want us to get this from it, that God's glory demands our worship, that God's glory demands our worship. And now, before I even move on any further, I do want to acknowledge that if you're not a Christian in the room, to you, that may sound a bit hard, right? It may sound a bit harsh, like, a, like a, an angry general commanding his soldiers to bow down to him, right? For God to demand worship. But we'll see this morning how this is actually the most beneficial thing for us that God could call us to do because it is in the worship of Creator God and Lord that we as human beings find our deepest satisfaction and our deepest joy. As, as John Owen wrote, he said, only a sight of His glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. It's a glorious thing to be called to worship the God of glory. It's an even greater thing to be called to reflect that glory to the world. And, and, and David Van Drunen in his book called God's Glory Alone puts it this way. God grants the privilege 
of reflecting, God grants us the privilege of reflecting his own glory as we grow in holiness and ascribe him glory in our worship and by one day joining him in glory of the new creation. And, and of course, we, we couldn't talk about this topic without quoting the probably uh, the most quoted phrase by uh, a guy named Steve Timmis at our, all of our sojourn churches. If you've been coming around for a while, you've probably heard this phrase many times. He says that God's purpose has always been to have a people for himself to whom and through whom he reveals his glory to the world. So first... We'll take a look back on history to see what Soli Deo Gloria meant to the Reformation. And second, we'll, we'll take a look at the story of God's glory throughout Scripture. And third, we'll see and look at how we should respond in light of that. Simple enough? Let's, let's jump in. Before uh, I, I talk about the history, uh, I'm sure some of you here may be asking yourself this question. What is the glory of God, though, right? It's, it's a very Christianese term that uh, many times gets thrown around, like, I'm living for the glory of God, brother, right? Like, what, is that, what does that really mean, though? What does that look like? What is the glory of God? And, and in the Old Testament, the word glory in Hebrew, kabod, means, literally means weight or the significant substance of something. And it speaks of God's splendor, His brightness, His abundance, His dignity, His honor, and His reputation. In the New Testament, the Greek word used for glory is doxa. This is where we get our word doxology, which means uh, an act of worship, right? More in a, in a liturgical sense. So we find kind of even, even the text that we're in today, if you have an ESV, before we read verse 24, it calls it a doxology. And this means splendor, magnific magnificence, excellence, dignity, an opinion, always a good opinion, resulting in praise and honor for the one whom it's talking about, namely God, right? And so we, we must first acknowledge that God's glory is first internal. So it is what he is made of. It is, it is, it is his intrinsic worth, his majesty, his holiness, or his otherness in all of his attributes. In other words, uh, there is nothing like God in all of creation in all of the universe, there may be things that reflect His glory like us or like creation, but there is nothing in nature, nothing in essence that is in any way like God. He is otherworldly, and that's essentially what holiness means. He is completely set apart. So glory is when that holiness, that otherness of God in all of His beauty is reflected visibly for us to see and isaiah 6 3 isaiah shifts from holiness of god to the glory of god so it seems as if to isaiah the the radiance the visibleness of holiness of god filling the earth for people to see is this glory that is shining through he says the whole earth is full of his glory is what he proclaims and and to quote a guy you might might have heard of him john piper um uh, his his working definition of the glory of god is this he says the outward radiance so the outward radiance of the intrinsic worth beauty and greatness 
of his manifold or his many perfections. The outward radiance of the intrinsic worth, beauty, and greatness of his many perfections. And God's glory, brothers and sisters, is too good to keep to himself. So he displays it in and through his creation. And so we'll see that uh, this morning. So let's look at the motto, uh, Soli Deo Gloria, and what it meant to the Christians of the Reformation. Number one, it pointed to the fact that God receives all the glory in salvation, in saving sinners like you and I. So if we follow like what I, what I mentioned earlier with the, the five solas and how we can put them in a cohesive sentence, if, according to the Scripture alone, if salvation is by grace alone, not because God saw anything good in you, through faith alone, not through your good works, you can't contribute anything. And even Scripture says that faith is a gift of God. In Christ alone, not your works, but the works that Christ did on your behalf. If salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then the, then the result of that logically and scripturally is that God receives all the credit for you this morning if you know Jesus, if you have an intimate relationship with him. It's not because you turned the corner and your neighbor didn't. It's not because you, you, you were truly able to understand something that your neighbor didn't. It is solely because of God's undeserved favor over you. And that, brothers and sisters, gives God all of the glory. And our text this morning, look at it with me. Jude 24 and 25 reminds us and points us to this truth. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. So it is he, God alone, who is able to keep us and present us blameless on that day before God. And it is all through the person and the work of Jesus. And we heard Marshall preach on that last week, right? Ephesians 2 also points to this. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our sin. We're living and dead in our, I mean, we were living in sin. We were dead in our trespasses. But it was God who made us alive. And we can't, if we are dead, we can't resurrect ourselves. We need someone else to come and resurrect us. And that's what God did for us. And so Soli Deo Gloria, within the context of the five solas, meant that all glory, all credit belonged to God. Paul gives us uh, the wonderful progression of this salvation in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen, listen here to verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul attributes all of the credit to God here. And so when the reformers had this belief in uh, the, the glory belongs only to God for salvation, they derived it from these texts and many more. 
And Jude is very aware of this as he's writing this very short letter to his readers, so much so that as he's calling his readers to persevere in verses 17 and on to verse 23, as he's calling them to persevere, he can't help but remember that at the end of the day, it is only God who can execute. It is only God who is able to keep them and to cause them to persevere. And so his theology leads him into doxology. His theology leads him into worship. And he finishes this letter worshiping God for his ability to keep him blameless, keep him from stumbling. And this should, for us, an application point for us, should produce worship in us as it did in Jude. If we, if we can sit here and agree to all of the theology behind the Reformation and it just end there without it producing a deep worship in our hearts that overflows, then, then brothers and sisters, we, we need to have a serious heart check, right? If, if we are simply filling our minds with theology or defending theology for the sake of the theology, then we miss the whole point of what it was meant to do. It was meant to do what it did for Jude, which is produce worship in our hearts. And so Lydia Gloria in that time did that to Christians who had a renewed sense of God's glory, God's grace in their life. But this, but this phrase was also a protest against glory-hungry Rome in that, in that day. Essentially what Rome was doing was they were, they were taking over as much property as they could building up an earthly empire. For that, Luther was enraged by that. So this, this text and, and really this, this motto, right, tells us that the glory belongs to God alone, yes, for the salvation of our souls and the church, but, but in a greater, more overarching meaning, it means that the glory of God begins and ends with God, that it belongs to Him only. And that the church is meant to reflect that glory to the world. Not to build for ourselves glory and power and prestige and, and influence in a political or economic sense on this earth. So it was a protest to what was happening in that day and age. And it also influenced Christians to live for the glory of God, right? When you hear this word vocation, uh, right, our, our job, our duty, um, where we make a living, right, back then, it was seen almost as if, as if it, was, it was only meaningful work if you worked within the church. But this idea that to live to the glory of God affected every area of our life suddenly gave the shoemaker purpose. Martin Luther calls him, to make the best shoe that he can make to the glory of God. And out of this came what, what, is, what is now known as the Protestant work ethic that largely influenced us here in America. And so although it did do that, although it did influence how we live our life for the glory of God alone, ultimately, Soli Deo Gloria is a motto primarily about God himself and how he reveals and has revealed his glory 
to the world. And then secondarily, the Christian during the Reformation also recognized that God indeed glorifies his people and enables them to reflect this glory through their worship and obedience. So if this is the case, then this compels us to take a primary look at how God has revealed his glory throughout history. Because, because the danger in preaching a, a, a sermon on to the glory of God alone is that we thwart it and that now it becomes all about us, about how we can live to the glory of God. But instead, to the reformers and in Scripture, more importantly, when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it probably mentions God's story of glorification throughout, throughout history, 80 to 90%, and then in the New Testament, we do find some very important topic, um, some very important scriptures that point us to how to live for the glory of God. And so, allow me to take us through kind of a, bu- a brief overview of this story of God's glory throughout Scripture. Genesis one: God creates man in His image to reflect His glory to the world. God gives mankind, Adam and Eve, every good thing in the garden. But we rebel. Mankind rebels, wanting to become our own individual gods, deciding what is right and wrong in our own eyes, right, through Adam and Eve, our representatives. We turn back on Creator God and suffer the consequence, alienation, separation from God's glorious presence. But grace does step in, right? And it is here that we find the first glimpse of this gospel that would be revealed to us in Christ. There's a promised Messiah in Genesis 3. And beginning with the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, God then begins to form a people, Israel, to whom and through whom he would reveal his glory. And then we we find as we continue on in Exodus 1, we see that the people of Israel become enslaved in Egypt. But God delivers them from slavery. And and, and what does he do? He guides them with a glorious pillar of cloud and fire in Exodus 13. Yet even then, they rebel against him. Brothers and sisters, to have a cloud, a pillar of cloud and fire guiding your every way, protecting you. And yet to still find yourself rebelling against him is proof of just how sinful our hearts are. But again, grace steps in. Then God uses Moses' successor, Joshua, to lead God's people, Israel, into the land that God had promised them. In 1 Corinthians 17, then God promises David that his son Solomon, King Solomon, would then build a temple where God's glory would finally dwell, which was the, the, the people of God's Deep desire to have the glory of God, the presence of God, dwell intimately with them. So Solomon builds this temple and dedicates this temple to God. And and what what happens? We see in 2 Chronicles 7 that that God does indeed fill the temple with with his glory. What, what 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 a beautiful and exciting day that might that must have been for the people of Israel to have God's glory fill them yet it became evident that even though God continued to to show his glory through the temple to his people they still rebelled 
And it became clear that God's people, when, when God's glory that, uh, that was most holy showed up, their sinfulness was exposed and their rebellion was judged. See, when, when, when God's glory, brothers and sisters, when, when the presence of God and all of his holiness appears, sin has no place there. Sin must be judged. And it became evidently clear that their sin was an immovable obstacle to the intimate communion with God that the glory cloud and the glory filling the temple promised them. So they're exiled eventually, receiving the judgment due to their rebellion. The sad day when the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. But instead of God doing away with his people as he had every right to, he lavishes his people with even more grace by doing something unthinkable. Instead of God filling another temple made by human hands, he would essentially send his, his, repre his representative, his glory, the very imprint of the Father's nature, Jesus, the very glory of God wrapped in human flesh and would come to dwell among us. See, see everything God's people did merited their destruction. Yet precisely at the right time, while God's people were as weak as they could be, God sends his son, Jesus, the God-man, to pitch his tent, to tabernacle among us, as John 1 tells us, that he dwelt with us. God's glory would, would never again revisit his people filling an earthly temple because he would choose to have his glory put on human flesh to walk the streets that his people walked. In other words, Jesus is the walking, talking, glory-filled temple that they so desperately longed for. And the epistle to the Hebrews describes Jesus as this. He says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So then, brothers and sisters, he does away with the obstacle that was in the way of God's people dwelling in intimate communion with the glorious presence of God. Jesus would go up to the cross, right? For the joy that was set before him and on the cross would be punished for our rebellion for our sin, die in our place, then rise from the grave, proving his defeat of sin and death. He would himself bear the wrath that we, his people, deserve for our rebellion. But it gets even better, right? He goes a step further, and once again, grace beyond comprehension steps in, and Jesus promises his people the gift of his glorious presence dwelling within our hearts. He promises that the Spirit would come and fill his church in John 16. Imagine how that would sound to the Jewish mind. To have this longing for God's glory to once again be with them and dwell with them intimately without having their sin be that obstacle between them and the glory of God? 
Now, Jesus says that glory of God will dwell inside of you. And that's what God's promise is to us, his church. But, it, but, but this promise is even better because now that our sin has been done away with, now that the, uh, the, the thing that, that required judgment and separation from God's glory has been done away with through Christ. So now we have no need to fear that one day that glory, like it departed the earthly temple, will ever depart our hearts. If you have placed your faith in Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus, no amount of darkness, no amount of turmoil, no amount of sin even can separate you from the presence of His Spirit in you. And that's why Jude here attributes all of the glory to God alone. To the only God, he says, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. In other words, throughout all of history, it is all to the glory of God. And if Soli Deo Gloria is first and foremost about God glorifying Himself. And that means that we are first products of glory before anything else. Products of His grace. And if this is so, then that should produce in us, brothers and sisters, deep humility. A desperation for God. And dependence on His Spirit. If indeed we did nothing, and we can do nothing. If we are helpless and hopeless apart from His grace, then it should produce dependence, desperation, and humility. And second, we are His agents as well, called to reflect that glory to the world. And so that means that God's glory is, <laughs> there is nothing greater to lose your life for than for the glorification of God throughout history. So that means denying my flesh. That means bearing my cross. It's a small, minuscule price to be caught up in the glorification of God throughout history. How does this happen, though, right? How, how can I live this out tomorrow morning? What does that look like for, for us? We live to display God's glory, brothers and sisters, when our faith is increased and it overflows into worship and humble service. Or, or better stated, to give God all the glory, right? God glorifies Himself by increasing our faith, which overflows into worship and humble service of Him. Let me show you from Scripture where Paul points to this, so you don't think I'm making this up. And then I'll give us some, some handles to walk out of here with. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, what we read, Paul tells the Ephesians this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in earth, I'm sorry, in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power, through His Spirit 
in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, right? The love of God, essentially. And then he says at the end, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he also bursts into worship after he considers and meditates on this beautiful theology. But what reason was Paul talking about when he says, for this reason I bow my knee before the Father? Well, we find that in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, where he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, catch the, 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 the language here, with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a what? A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul prayed that the Ephesian church would be strengthened with the power of God, that their faith would increase, that they would grasp the love of God so that all of the fullness of God would dwell in them, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul had this picture as well, brothers and sisters, of the temple now being the church, being filled with the glorious presence of God. God revealing that glory to us and then us revealing that glory or displaying that glory, reflecting it to a watching world. The fact that we can now enjoy this communion, the fact that God's glory through His Spirit dwells in us as His church because of all that Christ has accomplished in our place should produce increased faith in God's ability to keep us, to guard us from the enemy, right? To provide for us and to preserve us until the end. If indeed our salvation, if indeed history begins and ends with God doing all of the things, God being the actor, then that should increase our faith. It should, it should cause us to trust that He is who He says He is. Right? That He will do what He said He will do. Produces patience in tribulation and in suffering. Trust in His goodness when we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And Jude says that God does this with great joy when He presents us on that day that we all look forward to as believers, when he, when he presents us blameless, he says that God will do this with great joy. And Paul affirms here in Ephesians 3 that, that God's love is at the heart of this great work. Jude also mentions it in verse 21 when he says, keep yourself, well, beginning in verse 20 really, he says, but you Beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith. Again, increasing faith. And then verse 21, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That leads to eternal life. 
How do we? How do? How do I increase my faith, Pastor? Like, I can't do it. If God is the actor, then I can't do anything, right? But He has decreed and He's given us ways through which we fan into flame that gift within us, and we can't get away from it. Uh, the fact that um, He does this through God's Word is undeniable. So that means, brothers and sisters, that this should produce in us an increased desire to immerse ourselves in God's word. Setting time aside to meditate on God's goodness to you, found in the story of the gospel and scripture, but also how that story transformed your life. Uh, A couple of years ago, I walked into a Jewish deli, a Jewish deli, and I saw a beautiful picture. I saw the, the, the father of all these generations, an older Jewish man sitting at the table eating with his grandchildren and his children, he was retelling the story of Moses to them and how Moses saved the people out of uh, a slavery in Egypt. What, what a beautiful thing that, that it is to, to sit back and meditate on God's goodness for us. And that, that confronts our busy body culture today, right? It, it confronts the fact that um, to, to simply set time aside to meditate on God's goodness when we could be doing other things more, quote-unquote, productive, right? Seems countercultural, counterintuitive to our, our culture. But we, mu- we must fight against that current, brothers and sisters. If, if God's glory is worth it, and it's the only thing worth living for, then it means, as I said earlier, that it's a small price for me to deny myself, to take up my cross, to dive deep into the understanding of God's love for us in Christ so that that would produce increased faith in God to do what he promised that he would do. And as I stated, our busybody culture is constantly pulling us in every direction. Right. I, I would encourage you to read uh, to, God, to, to, to God's Glory Alone by David Van Drunen. He, he goes into more detail and explains kind of the, from, a, from a psychological or sci- even scientific perspective how the Internet age and social media age has changed our brains and how we function. We're so used to having information at our fingertips. We're so used to having everything so quickly at our fingertips, that it kills the ability to meditate deeply for a considerable amount of time. So maybe, maybe that looks like us taking some breaks, and this is particularly convicting for me as well. Maybe this means we take some breaks from social media, or maybe it simply means that when we're with our brothers and sisters or family and sharing a meal we, we put our phone as far away from us as possible to, to train our minds once again to be in the moment meditating on God's goodness without the, just the kind of subconscious checking of our phone when nothing has popped up, right? God's glory is, is more than worth us doing this, right? But it doesn't just flow out into worship and, and us uh, setting time aside. It, it is revealed in our obedience, right? It is revealed in our obedience. And, and I, I didn't plan it, but uh, I'll still read the, the quote by C.S. Lewis 
uh, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And brothers and sisters, when the glory of God is presented to us in comparison with the mud pie of our sin, of our self-glorification, of our many glory devices, choosing the glory of God becomes irresistible. And out of that flow, out of that overflow of worship and obedience, one thing that, that cannot be denied that will happen to us is an increased desire to share this story of glory and of grace with other people. It would be revealed in how we desire to share this gospel story with those who have yet to hear, with those who have yet to trust and be exposed to the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Because in the gospel, we find the most clear presentation of the glory of God as we read in Hebrews. God's glory has always been to show his glory to his people, to then reveal that glory through his people so that the nations may see and be drawn to it. And Paul calls the Romans in chapter 12, and with this we'll close, verses 1 and 2, calls them to, uh, by the mercies of God, to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, he says, your spiritual worship. And then he calls them to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. And by extension, he calls us to do the same. And as we, as, we, as, as we remember, as we meditate on this story of glory throughout history and throughout Scripture, we can say together, brothers and sisters, with Jude, as he burst out into worship, we can say with him, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we desperately need you, Lord. We need your spirit. We need your power to work in us and through us. We're confronted with our own proneness to rebellion and sin, but we thank you for Jesus uh, because Jesus did away with that obstacle, and now we can dwell with you intimately. And we ask you that that would overflow in our hearts, God, into worship, into obedience, self-denial, God, and that it would also produce a desire, an increasing desire to share this story with others who have yet to believe in you. Help us, Lord. Without you, we're helpless. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.